morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, this is Sunday morning. And we pray that as we are here gathered during worship, that you would preserve our joy, that you would build up our hope, that you would fill us with your wisdom, that your Holy Spirit would encourage us, that we would find new ways in which we can have our image made over into the image of Jesus Christ. All of us are here this morning, and no doubt each of us have our own distractions, those distractions that would rob us of our time with you in a focused way. Help us, we pray, to set all of that aside. Do not allow the distractions that are a part of our life even now to be idols that rob us of our time and our attention in worship to you. As we explore and open up your word, may it both inspire and bring conviction to our hearts so that you might be pleased, so that we might grow, and through all of that, more than anything, you might be glorified. We pray these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. So, as you know, uh, we have our Family Fall Festival coming up October 15th, and it's kind of like our kickoff for the programmatic year, and it seemed a right and a good thing for me to um, spend a number of weeks on material, on a message, messages that would help to recalibrate our hearts so that we enter into this new year changed people with a fresh focus on what the Lord has called us to as a people and as a church. And so we need that very much. And so I began uh, two weeks ago talking about this iconic passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where um, the Apostle Paul challenges the church in Corinth, uh, a church that would look very similar to many churches that exist today. Um, but he challenges them to run this race, and he, he taps into... Because remember, the Apostle Paul lived in Corinth for two years. And while he was in Corinth, he would have seen what were called the Pan-Hellenistic Games. And uh, they were second only in prominence to the Olympic Games. And so they are, were very, very much a part of the culture, of the Greek culture. So they loved sports no less than we love sports. In the same way, like... If I'm still preaching at 12 or 12.10, everyone here is going to be looking at their watch, wondering how you're going to get back home in time for the Steelers game at 1, right? But I won't be preaching that long, I promise you. 
Um, and so, uh, but it's, but that was very much a part of their culture and they were passionate about it. So when the Apostle Paul tapped into this imagery, this metaphor of running the race, everybody there would have known exactly what he was talking about because they had a deep appreciation of uh, the Greek athlete, a tremendous respect for a Greek athlete. So in tapping into this imagery, this metaphor, and this is all, I'm sort of going back over some of this, not all of this, just to, there are a number of people here who weren't here two weeks ago, and so I wanna catch you up to speed. He was also tapping into this meta-narrative, this bigger story even be, that was behind the Greek athlete, and that bigger story was about a guy named Phaedipus, or Phaedipus, um, Phaedippus was a, a soldier and a professional runner, an athlete, who about 500 years before Christ uh, fought in the Battle of Marathon. He had spent two weeks prior to that battle running back and forth between Greek cities trying to get them to join in this battle against the Persians. He was unsuccessful. And so about 20,000 Athenian soldiers fought 100,000 Persian soldiers. And he fought too, even though he ran for two weeks straight. He fought in that battle. And uh, at the end of the day, 192 Greeks died to about 6,400 Persians. When it appeared that the victory was complete, General Matias said to Phaedipidus, I want you to run to Athens and to warn them, that, to tell them that we've been victorious here, but to warn them that the Persians will now probably attack Athens from the sea, which is what they did. So Phaedipus, without thinking anything else, stripped down to his birthday suit and nakedly ran 25 plus miles to the city of Athens, entered in the gates, ran down the causeway, fell into the arms of the leaders of that city, and died while he shouted, Nike, which means victory. It's where we get the word Nike for Nike brand. In honor of Phaedipidus, the Greeks entered into their athletic contest, a thing called the Marathon where that battle was fought near the city of Marathon. And so, um, and so that story rooted itself in Greek culture in any time they talked about a marathon or about a Greek runner, Phaedipus was in the background and he was the archetype. He was, this is the guy who gave it all. This was the guy who was the supreme athlete who lived his life with honor and sacrificed everything for his king and for his people. And the Apostle Paul, in writing that story, wanted every Christian in the city of Corinth to, to buy into that whole parallel. We have a king who is worthy to fight for. We have a king who is worthy to run long and hard for, and even to die. And if we do that, then maybe we too, as we fall into the arms of Jesus, as we enter through the gates of heaven, maybe we too can fall into the arms of Jesus 
and shout, Nike, victory, I have lived my life. I have sacrificed everything because you are worthy, Jesus, my King. And one of the most difficult things that's been so hard for the church for 2,000 years is to keep the main thing the main thing. No matter how personal things become, no matter how difficult or how challenging they are, that we see the bigger picture, we understand that God is at work in our life and he has called us to this great thing and that everything else is subordinate to that. And that when the church functions in that capacity, there isn't anything that the church cannot complete and do. Anything. So the Christians in Corinth would have understood that very clearly. Now, Phaedippus was an archetype. He was an athlete. And around that time, there was another Greek whose name was Protagoras. Protagoras was a a pre-Socratic philosopher who said this, that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. And the Greeks bought into that hook, line, and sinker because they believed that as human beings, because we were rational, we were the closest, we were the closest resemblance of what or who God was. And so Protagoras began to, to say this. And so this manifests itself in every part of Greek culture. Every part of Greek culture was infiltrated with this idea that man is the measure of all things. For the Greek athlete, he had to be exemplary. As a Greek athlete, he had to be above and beyond everything else. And it manifests itself in even its artwork. So if you see here, this is called the Dory Force. I have a little black spot there for obvious reasons. But if you see this, this statue, the Dory Force, you can see that it's idyllic. It's perfect. Everything is in absolute balance in terms of how that person who sculpted that about 500 years before Christ. And he did it in that way because they believed that man was a measure of all things and that they had to be the ideal in order to convey the idealism that should be a part of all human beings. Jesus is the measure of all things. And the more that we imitate Jesus, the more we become what all human beings need to be and need to see. There's a parallel here. And the Apostle Paul was buying into that as a part of his message to the Christians in Corinth. So in that text, Paul's first point in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27 The effective and successful Christian life is possible if we imitate the kind of dedication and sacrifice demonstrated in the Greek athletes. And that is true. If we would do in our own spiritual walk with Christ in the same kind of way that the Greeks did what they did in their athleticism, then we would be a different people. And by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Apostle Paul would have seen this. 
the Greek athlete trained in a, in a little place called the gymnasium. The gymnasium, the word means naked school. In the gymnasium were all kinds of things that the Greek athlete would use to accentuate their skill and ability and to sculpt their bodies. So when they trained in that way, it was to be totally transparent. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the Jews never participated in the Olympics because the Olympics were done nakedly. And the Jews would not do that. But the Greeks did it in part because they wanted that kind of accountability. They wanted everything about their image to be idealistic. There's a certain sense in which the Christian needs to be in the spiritual gymnasium, where our lives are just there. But in that place, we have everything that we need to exercise, to build ourselves up, so that when we are required to perform for Christ, we are ready. And that when people see us in our transparency, we can receive from them what we need to receive in a way that's encouraging and affirming so that we might grow and be better. I can promise you all of that was interlaid in Paul's letter to the Greek church in Corinth. So Paul's second point is, do what is necessary to run as if there was only one who can win the prize. So let's say that there was only one prize of salvation for the 7.8 billion people who live on the planet. He's saying, I want you in that kind of a way to do what is ever necessary, to be as strong as you can, to build up your skills so that you can perform in the kind of way that you might win that prize. So if that is true, why is Jesus Christ worthy of that kind of dedication, of that kind of discipline, of that kind of sacrifice in that manner? Why does Paul call them to that? And why does he call you and I? In what way is Christ worthy in that manner? So in preparation for the, the bigger thing I want to talk about, I wanted to remind us this morning of why Christ is worthy of that. And I was trying to think of some succinct texts that help to convey much of the essence of what Jesus has done for us. So, and Bree, I think this is slide 23. Here is a brief look at what you would call the epistle salutations. You know what a salutation is, it's a greeting. So every letter usually has a greeting, dear so-and-so. And then usually right after that, there's some kind of discussion about, I hope you are well, I hope things are going well, blah, 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 those kinds of things. And then you get into what it is you really want to say in your letter. It doesn't happen in texting so much anymore, probably something that we've lost that we really need. But, but in emails or regular letters, this is what we do. So... Here are, now, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you ever looked at the first portion of every letter, we normally gloss over them, but really they're kind of full of really 
helpful and inspiring material. And so here are just a few. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that God is merciful and comforting, especially during affliction. So we read here, Blessed be the God, a Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and a God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. So God is worthy of our dedication, our commitment, because he is this to us. And I know many people in this room right now for whom God has been this and is this even as I speak. That you are basking in the comfort that Christ brings to your life because of physical ailments or some kind of tragedy that has been a part of your life. In Galatians 1, 3 through 4, another part of the salutation, Jesus, it says, it talks about how Jesus gave himself for our sins. So the Apostle Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So we are committed, we love, we serve, because this is what Jesus Christ has done for us, that he gave himself, he that was without sin became sin so that the many might be saved, says the Apostle Paul, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age. Everyone in this room who claims to be a believer you have been delivered from the evil age. First Peter or Second Peter 1, 3 through4 talks about how, because of the work of Christ, that our nature has been restored or is being restored into Christ's divine nature. We are being restored. We are broken, we are damaged. And that brokenness and damagedness is being fixed because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it will be culminated in glory when we stand before God in heaven. No more tears. No more crying. No more pain. So Peter says, His divine power has granted to us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world. And I probably could have a conversation with any number of people here who would say to you, that's exactly what happened and what is happening to my life. I was this way before, and with my encounter with Christ, I am now this way, and the difference is so radical and so different. And that change is that Jesus has changed my nature over into his. Ephesians 1 3 through 5 says that we have been blessed and adopted as the children of God. Everyone here in this room, if you know and love Jesus, 
you are now his brother or his sister. He goes on to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It's exactly right. Thank you. So it's not like we just get in and, you know, we're servants who live on the lower level and, you know, or we're the the embarrassing redheaded stepchild or... No, that's not what it is. We are sons and daughters. In this fleeting world in which we live, where everything that seems like a great big huge fat deal right now is nothing in the world to come. And it's everything to be made over into the image of Jesus and to be adopted as his brother through Christ. But then, this. There is the complete and reversal, the complete reversal of our status. Everyone who claims to be a believer here, you've been rescued. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins so some of your texts read for he has delivered us but if you notice the keller coordination i have here you can see that there's this rescued and delivered redemption and forgiveness from the dominion the place, um, the, um, I'm trying to look at the, the word, the excusia. So it's a place or it's a status from the dominion of, and so you look at dominion and then you look at kingdom. We move from that dominion into the kingdom of God, from the darkness to the sun. You see what's going back and forth here in this text? It's the the opposite. Our status is completely opposite. We are part of the darkness before Christ. And now, after Christ, we live in the light. And we are part of the light. So we are thankful. And we want to serve. And we dedicate ourselves to Christ. Because of all these things and more (coughs) that I've shared with you. Jesus Christ is worthy of us running our life like Phaedippus ran his life. That we fight when we have to fight and we run to rescue when we have to run to rescue and to serve. But if that is true, if all of that is true, then why don't we? What is it that gets in the way? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7, 29. The larger context is Romans 7, 15 through 20. And so um, I'm just going to read um, the uh, passage from 719 just for the sake of time. 
where the Apostle Paul says there in Romans 7.19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. <laughs> For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what? I keep on doing. Why don't I run hard and long? Why don't I fight well? Why don't I train hard? Why don't I go to those places that will equip me and give me better skills? Why don't I do that? I see the value of it. I understand that it's important. I know that I should, but I don't. What was true of Paul? And this is the Apostle Paul. This is the second most influential person in the history of Christendom who is saying this thing. Now, do you think for one second that if it was true of the Apostle Paul that it might be true of me? Many of you would say yes, resoundingly. Do you think that if it's true of the Apostle Paul that it might also be true of you? Why don't we run hard? Why don't we train why don't we enhance our skills and do what is necessary to become the person that we need to be so that we can do the things that God calls us to? Why don't we do this? What is or are the primary sins in our life and why do they continue to be there? Have we even identified them? So I have a question for everybody here this morning as we prepare for this whole new year. Are you currently living out your Christian life optimally? So there's a slide for that. Yep, thank you, Bree. So are you currently living out your Christian life optimally? I am not. There's so much more in my life that I could and should be doing. I'm not saying that. I'm not placating. I'm not patronizing. I'm simply saying to you, I am not the kind of Christian man, let alone pastor, that I could be. There are so many more skills. There are so many more things that I could be doing to train harder. This is the danger when you're a pastor and you start preaching on this stuff because, you know, you, have, you get convicted by the thing you're trying to convict other people about, right? So... And so the next question is, if we are not living our Christian life out optimally, if not, why not? Why not? What specifically is preventing you or me from substantially raising the level of our effectiveness for our current Christian life? What? If any of us get sick and we have certain symptoms... We want to identify what is causing that sickness. Is it the flu? Is it a cold? Is it a disease? Is it my kids? What, what, what is it that's causing me to feel sick? And as soon as we identify that, then we know how to treat it. But if we remain ignorant of the exact kind of sickness that it is, 
then it's only guesstimates. And it's fear and it's avoidance. So there's a certain amount of courage. So when the Greek athlete is in the gym, and as is true for many athletes, another athlete say, you know, your, your biceps, your chest, all that looks good, but man, you've got skinny legs. You really think so? Yeah, you're disproportionate, man. You've got to work on those legs harder. Those conversations take place in a gym. If we have certain sin in our lives and we won't deal with that, we aren't open to how to discover what those are, then we're going to have skinny legs. We might be able to do certain things, but we can't do other things. So what is the issue? So I've identified nine or ten possible issues about why we are not growing, we are not enhancing our skills. And so the, the truth is that everyone in this room, probably including myself, probably has one or more of these right now in this room at this time, right now, Everyone in this room has one or more of these alive and well in their life. And the question becomes, if we admit that they are there, if we know that's the sickness, then what will we do about that? What place will we go? What methods will we use? to overcome it. The first, apathy. There is probably too much apathy in the church. Not just this church, but the church in general, because we are, dist we are distracted. Apathy. Are you apathetic about the call and the demands that Christ has on our life? John says in the book of Revelation, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Lord does not abide in apathy. No Greek athlete ever succeeded at anything by being apathetic in his craft. There's no professional here that excelled professionally if you were apathetic about your profession. I mean, you can coast for a little while being apathetic, but after a while, it catches up. You cannot be a good parent and be apathetic in regard to your children. All of these really important big things in life we understand we cannot be apathetic about but we are lost on the apathy that's within the church as a whole. Are you apathetic? The second one, complacency. And that's different than apathy. Apathy is you don't care. Complacency means you're satisfied with how things are. That's different. So Zephaniah records in chapter 12, and at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, 
The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Everything's okay. It's no big deal. Are we complacent? Are we satisfied with how we are now? And if we are satisfied with how we are now, <clears throat> then what does that say about, about what does that say about the, the admonition from Jesus that our image needs to be like his image? Because if we're complacent, if we say we're satisfied, <clears throat> then maybe we've arrived. Does anybody say they've arrived? I can't say that. And if I ever say that, fire me. Jesus talks about this in a parable in Luke 12, where he says, uh, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? There is no place for complacency. We have not arrived. Number three, distractions. If we are anything in our culture today, it is a culture that is replete with distractions. There are a gazillion ways in which people are being distracted from their purpose that God has for them. And there are two primary distractions, pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain. We are a world that's full of all kinds of unlimited distractions of pleasure. And we are a world that is full. Look, and when I say, when I say fear or pain, and I, I would use those two together, we are absolutely, without question, not even close, and I don't, see, I don't see the end of the tunnel in this at all, the most medicated psychologically uh, de uh, uh, demographic population in the history of the world, and almost all of it has to do with helping people to overcome their paranoia and their fears. Teenagers. It's astounding how many teenagers. And if they have to be on something, they have to be on something. I'm just saying to you, it never used to be that way. And so what are we doing in our world that's causing all that? Distractions. Are we distracted? Are we distracted by our stuff? Are we distracted by the pursuit of pleasure? Are we distracted? So... Paul says in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, about offering our bodies up as living sacrifices, is another text that you would want to read in light of this. I have to go through these a little fast. The next one, ignorance. Are we as informed as we can be informed? Are we as educated as well as we can be educated? Do we pursue knowledge of and for God? 
at our fingertips. Right here, we have the wealth of the world in knowledge. Right here. This, the computing power of this thing is greater than the first Apollo moon flight. There is no reason why we should be ignorant. There is no reason why we should not know or cannot be in a process of knowing what we need to know about how to be faithful to God. The next one, purposelessness. Do we have a keen and vibrant sense of how God wants to use us in this world? Do you have a purpose as a believer? Is it, is it resolute? Do you understand the role that God has for you in this world? Because I can promise you, that's where the judgment of God begins. In the primary, the first judgment, even as a believer, we are judged and rewarded according to how we've lived our life. But in that judgment, the nodal point will be, did you, did you fulfill the purpose for which I created you? Do you know your purpose? 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. <clears throat> Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Highlight this in your Bibles. Underline it. Write notes in the margin. Understand we are God's workmanship that he created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Those good works which he prepared in, in God's providence. There's work out there that he has and that he created us to do that work, and if that work doesn't get done, hear me, when that work doesn't get done, people suffer. There are people suffering in this room right now and have suffered in this room because the primary people who were in your life who should have had the skills, who should have had that sense of purpose, didn't show up. And they did not give to you what you needed. And you were left to flounder in certain ways. And it caused pain in your life. And now because they didn't give it to you, you don't have it. And if you don't look for ways to get it, then the people down the road that God is putting in front of you to encounter, you can't give it to them either. We call that breaking the cycle. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we come full circle. I talked about a Greek runner. And now we have this passage on God's purpose and that we run this race that God has set before us. 
with endurance. The next is priorities. What are our priorities? Are our priorities misaligned? It's clear that our love for Christ must come first. And if we love Christ first, then he teaches us how to love everything else better. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Fear. How many of us are afraid? Afraid to stand for Christ, afraid to speak for Christ. Afraid of what other people will think. Afraid of judgment. Fear. David experienced that and said in Psalm 56.3, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand, says Isaiah in chapter 41. Bondage. There are many people who cannot serve God because they're in bondage. They're in bondage to sin. There's a certain kind of sin or sins. Addictions, obsessions, bondage. And if we are in bondage to certain kinds of sin, then we should seek help to get out of that bondage. We may not be able to get out of it on our own. But some of us will not pursue that help because we've grown used to that bondage and that we've allowed that bondage to create a life of its own. This is what we call codependency a lot of times. Bondage. Is anyone here in bondage? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may, uh, so that you may be able to endure it. Rebellion. How many of us are living in rebellion? We know that God wants us to do this thing, to be this thing, to pursue this thing, but we just say, no, I'm not doing it. That's too much. The cost is too great. The inconvenience I will not put up with. Rebellion. How many here have rebellion in their heart? Oppression. Some Christians are oppressed. That Satan is involved in their life in such a way that he just oppresses them. He assaults them and will not allow them to think outside of the fear, of the concern of whatever they are being oppressed about. And if you are oppressed, then you need to pursue counsel with your pastor or with elders or a believer you may need significant help I don't know I don't think anybody here is oppressed but I'm saying there are many people who will not give up their life to Christ because they're oppressed Phaedipidus could have succumbed to any one of these nine or ten things that I mentioned to you 
So when you look at the whole list here, um, apathy, complacency, ignorance, purposelessness, priorities, fear, bondage, rebellion, and oppression, everyone in this room owns at least one of these. Everyone in this room probably owns more than one of these. And the question that has to be put before all of us here, what will we do about that in order that we can become the kind of runner, the kind of fighter, the kind of person who is determined to fall into the arms of Jesus Christ and shout, Nike, victory. I have lived my life. I have run hard. I have run long. <coughs> I have disciplined myself. I have pursued the skills that I need. I have laid aside all of these things as best I could so that I could fall into the arms of Jesus and honestly and truthfully shout, Nike, 